You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Maybe it's the combined service, but since we've been meeting for the last few weeks without masks, I've realized there's a lot of you I haven't met yet. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Trenton Gartke. Uh, I'm not Pastor Trevor, (laughs) uh, but I have the privilege uh, of serving as one of the small group leaders here uh, at Redemption. My wife Cambry and I have been attending Redemption since uh, about 2016, and we love it here. Um, It's so good to be a part of a church family um, that's passionate about the spread of the gospel here in southern Alberta and loves meeting together. We love the priority that redemption places on church planting and reaching the community. Uh, Cambry and I have two kids, Seth, who's about two and a half, and a little girl, Corinne, who's going to turn one here next month. Um, Obviously, each stage is wonderful in its own way, but our boy Seth is in a a bit of a unique stage right now. It's the the do-it-again stage. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, You'll do something he likes, and he needs it again. Dada, do it again. Dada, do it again, he says. Uh, Usually we're playing a game uh, or maybe we're singing a song or something. And the whole time, Dada, do it again. But one thing that gets me is he he does the same thing with books. Uh, Maybe your kids do that too. Or I don't know, maybe Seth's a little bit odd. Uh, But we'll finish reading a book together and he wants to read the same book right away again. The same book. Dada, read it again. Um... For most of us, boring adults, we don't really get that, right? Uh, We usually can't wait to move on to the next thing. Like, we have a skip intro button on our Netflix shows, for crying out loud. But there's something in that childlike nature and faith that Jesus points to in the Gospels when Seth wants to read and reread and re-reread the same Franklin the Turtle book again and again. He's totally engrossed. He's learning Uh, He's like a massive sponge soaking it all in and being enveloped in the book, and he internalizes it. Um, Kids have an amazing memory they develop through repetition, right? Uh, We'll be reading the same book uh, maybe for the third time, and he'll start to finish the sentences on his own, Um, or he'll be quoting the Franklin book about riding a bike when he's out learning to ride his own bike. Um, It's so cool to watch. Now, Can you imagine if we had the same appetite, uh, the same desire, the same joy in God's word as our kids do in some book about a kid turtle? Can you imagine God's delight when after basking in the light of the word of God, we would exclaim with excitement and anticipation, Dada, do it again. Do it again. God's will is for us to be a people who are all about his word, which he's given to us, a people of the word. As our heavenly father, he knows our need of it. He knows our childlike dependence on it. Well, we're in Joshua 9 this morning. Uh, Joshua chapter 9, flip, me, flip with me there in your Bibles. Um, Joshua 9 is going to tell us all about what it means to be a people of the word. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will find you and will pass you a copy of God's word. Um, And if you don't have one, uh, just keep this one as our gift to you. 
Now, the importance of being a people of the word has already been a constant theme throughout Joshua. Uh, The Israelites' success in the promised land has always been tied uh, to how closely they would observe and obey the word of God. Remember right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Joshua chapter 6, the defeat of Jericho. Remember, it was all about being a people who were obedient to the word of God and not trusting in a battle plan made by man. The sin of Achan in chapter 7 ultimately was a problem of not believing and not obeying the word of the Lord. And then finally in chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, take a peek. Trevor just brought us through this last week. After the defeat of Ai, Joshua builds an altar and refocuses Israel on the word of God. He literally rewrites an entire copy of the books of Moses, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. And then Joshua reads all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, the entire book God's word is that critical to the people of Israel. Uh, And now we reach chapter 9. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are your children. Uh, God, and as your children, we confess that we need you this morning. Everything we are is totally dependent on you. We depend on you for our daily food. We depend on you for health and for strength and for our very lives. Nothing good we have is apart from you. God, we know that we don't depend on food alone for our well-being, but we depend on your very word, on every powerful word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God, thank you that you've given us your word this morning, and thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to illuminate and apply your word to our lives. God, would you soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning through your word? Would your word proceed and not come back void? We pray these things in the name of Jesus the living word, the word incarnate, amen. Now, uh, just as the importance of the word of the Lord has been a constant theme throughout Joshua, chapter nine is gonna drive home the point for us. Uh, Joshua nine shows us three ways to be a people of the word. Three ways to be a people of the word. Let's read uh, verses one to 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. 
For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take your provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, this is a lot of text. There's a lot going on here uh, that might be a little bit tricky to follow. So let me summarize for us. Um, We're catching up with the Israelites right in the middle of their conquest of the promised land. Joshua 6, right, told us about the defeat of Jericho. Joshua 7 and 8 told us about the sin of Achan and the conquest of Ai. And now we arrive at Joshua 9, where we learn that the inhabitants of Canaan are mobilizing to fight against Israel. Verses 1 and 2 give us a list of peoples in the land and how they're gathering together to fight back against Israel. But then, in verse 3, instead of giving us yet another battle, the narrative switches gears. Uh, Verse 3 zeroes in on a people of the land called the Gibeonites. And we're told that the Gibeonites don't come out with swords and spears. No, they come out with trickery and with deceit. Uh, What we're told is that the Gibeonites hatched a plan to make peace with Israel. And not just make peace, but a covenant, a binding agreement of peace. So their plan was to convince Israel that they were from a far away land and not, in fact, from a nearby city. Um, Gibeon was only about seven miles uh, away from where Israel was camped at the moment. See how in verses three to five, they used worn out clothing and provisions in order to fool Israel. So... For those of us unfamiliar with the passage, uh, we should be asking the obvious question, uh, why? Uh, Why did Gibeon need to convince Israel that they were from faraway land? What's the big deal here? Well, uh, back in Deuteronomy, God had given Israel clear directions on how they were to conquer the promised land in Canaan. And God drew an important distinction between peoples inside the promised land and people on the outside. Uh, peoples on the inside of Canaan's borders were to be utterly destroyed so that Canaan, or sorry, so that Israel could take full possession of the land and receive the full portion of the land. But peoples on the outside uh, were eligible for peace treaties, kind of like the one we see the Gibeonites making a play for here. Um, listen to what Deuteronomy 20 says, verses 16 to 17. This is absolutely key understanding what's going on here in Joshua 9. Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 17, it says this, in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Now, in the verses right before these, Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 15, 
God gives Israel clear direction on how to offer peace to any cities that are outside the promised land. So we see the clear distinction. Those inside Canaan to be utterly destroyed. Uh, Those outside, Israel's okay to make peace with. And if you were paying close attention, you'll note the same list of peoples is used in Joshua 9 verse 1 as we just read in Deuteronomy 20 verse 17. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. What the writer of the book of Joshua is doing uh, is making a direct reference to this command in Deuteronomy so that the audience would be clued in as to what Israel's supposed to do to these people. But what does Israel do instead? Uh, Instead of utterly destroying the Gibeonites, they fall for their trickery. Uh, They allow themselves to become convinced that these guys really are from a faraway land and not from inside Canaan as they actually are. Now listen, it's tempting to sympathize with the Israelites here, right? Uh, It seems like they're kind of the victim, getting tricked by the Gibeonites. Uh, The Gibeonites clearly put a lot of effort into defrauding Israel. Uh, Israel can get a pass on this one, right? Well, that's not how Joshua sees things. Look down again at verses 14 to 15 with me. It says this. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Joshua tells us that the Israelites made a fatal error. Uh, their error was that they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I'm sure they tasted the dry, crumbly bread. Uh, I'm sure they poked a hole uh, through the worn-out garments to make sure that they were real. Um, But ultimately, they failed to seek counsel from God. I like how Wearsby puts it here. He says, Israel followed the scientific method, but they did not follow the spiritual method. We get this, right? Um, Israel examined the facts Uh, They used their senses. It was all very logical and very reasonable. Um, But ultimately, it was wrong because they did not seek counsel from the Lord. Despite the sin of Achan in chapter 7, Israel's leadership still hadn't learned the importance of relying on the word of the Lord. It's really not about the fact that they were deceived. It's about the fact that they took it on themselves to judge the situation and determine the right course of action alone, without God. They acted independently of God instead of depending on him. They were not a people of God's word. So this is our example of what not to do. Um, Joshua 9 here warns us that we need to be a people of God's word. We need to be fully reliant on asking counsel from the Lord. So now, as as New Covenant Christians, um, this side of the cross, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to ask counsel of the Lord? How do we access the infinite wisdom and the perfect revealed will of God for our lives? We don't ask through a priest like Israel was supposed to do. Uh, We don't look for dreams or visions. Uh, Hopefully, we're not waiting for a voice from the clouds. Um, These aren't the the normative or standard ways of God revealing his will to us. No, God has already brought his word near to us. Uh, The sovereign God of the universe, uh, the Lord over all creation, the omnipotent, omniscient King of kings, he has given us his very word, literally in the Bible, that you've got on your lap. 
Uh, And even better, he hasn't left us alone with it. Um, Not only is the word of God clear and knowable, God has given us his very spirit uh, to lead us into understanding, application, and obedience to his word. So let me ask you this, how do you, how do you treat the Bible? I mean, practically, like if you're being honest yourself in this moment, how do you treat the Bible? Um, does it make it off the coffee table in between Sundays? Um, do you open it just so that you can check a box off in your Bible reading plan? Or do you know what it is to depend on God's word? Do you, do, do you depend on it so much that you couldn't even go a day without it? Um, is God's word an absolute necessity in your life, an absolute non-negotiable for you? Is God's word the first place you turn to when you need counsel or when you need to make a big decision? Israel had total access to God's word, but they figured they could do just fine on their own. They figured that they knew well enough and that they could examine the evidence well enough to make the call. Yeah, of course, the Gibeonites pulled off a convincing trick, um, but ultimately, Israel's leaders were deceived because of their own prideful self-sufficiency. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we're a lot more like the Israelites here than we care to admit, right? Um, We've seen God do amazing things, just like Israel did. Uh, He's provided for us when it seems like there was no way. He's won for us victory after victory in ways we never could have won for ourselves. Just like the Israelites through the Exodus and entering the promised land. And yet, we still act like we can take care of ourselves. We still act like we don't need him. We still trust in ourselves instead of the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving Yahweh, Lord of heaven and earth. Um, To maybe put things in uh, philosophical terms, we're, we're practical naturalists. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in our actions, we show that we only really trust in what we can see or what we can taste or what we can touch or what we can smell. Uh, we live our lives completely guided by our own senses and reasoning. But just like in Joshua, often the path of faith and obedience is in a completely opposite direction to what your worldly senses will tell you. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, we know these well, yet we seldom practice them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. God's call for us to be a people of the word is to rely more on his word than we even rely on our own senses. Now, uh, what does it mean practically to seek counsel from God? How do we actually use the Bible in our day-to-day lives? I mean, God's word is not like an advice vending machine, right? You can't just flip open a page and figure out, you know, what color socks to put on in the morning or something. But what God provides in his word is something much, much better I promise you this, as you read it, meditate on it, study it, and memorize it, God's word will transform you. It'll transform the way you think about everything. Uh, If you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It will completely reshape your priorities. Because God's word, applied by the Holy Spirit, 
is constantly transforming us into a people made in the image of Jesus Christ. It transforms us into a people fit not for the world, but fit to be the very dwelling place of God, a people of God's word. Here in Joshua, God is bringing his people into the promised land, a place he's prepared for them. But this is only a shadow of what is to come. We know a day is coming when the dwelling place of God is with man. Revelation 21, verse 3, he will dwell with us and we will be his people. This is amazing. God is shaping us into a people fit to be his dwelling place by the power of his spirit-inspired word. This is what it means to be a people of God's word. And God's word is ultimately a word of good news, the gospel. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of God, and that because our sin is against a perfectly holy God, we all deserve eternal punishment in hell. But then God's word tells us about how God, in his great divine mercy, sent his own son to die in our place, to bring us back to God, to give us salvation, to give us reconciliation, to give us new life. And the Bible shows us what it means to live day by day by the Spirit of God. How we're to put off our old sinful selves and put on our new selves, walking in the way of the Spirit. Do you know this glorious truth of the gospel? It's completely life-changing. All of this, all of what the Bible speaks to is incredibly practical for our daily lives. And practically speaking, God often communicates his word to us through the counsel of fellow believers. Um, If you're not surrounding yourself with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to bring you to the word of God, you absolutely need to. Just like with Israel in Joshua 9, your own wisdom, your own judgment, they're simply not good enough. Uh, Get yourself to a small group if you're not in one. Yeah, you're probably going to need to sacrifice some things to be there. Um, But you can't sit under the word of God and not be changed for the better. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, as we see here in Joshua 9, Israel's leadership failed, and they did not seek God's word. Uh, And they were left to deal with the consequences. Let's keep reading. Verses 16 to 27 says this. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, 
and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So we did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Well, uh, apparently word didn't take long to get out. Uh, Just three days after Israelites' leaders um, made the covenant with the Gibeonites, the the jig was up. And the Israelite people weren't too happy about it. Look again, verse 18. The whole congregation grumbled. Now, we don't know exactly why they were grumbling. Maybe they were grumbling because uh, their leadership had gone against God's word. Maybe they were grumbling because they wouldn't be able to plunder Gibeon cities. Either way, uh, their grumbling sets the stage for Israel's leadership to redeem itself. Uh, Instead of going back on the covenant they made with the Gibeonites, Israel's leadership stands by their word and fulfills their oath. The people of Israel are not allowed to kill the Gibeonites. Now listen, uh, Joshua and the other leaders could have made a pretty good case to go back on their word. After all, the Gibeonites had made the covenant under false pretenses, right? But this isn't the way they choose to operate. Instead, Joshua and Israel's leadership keep their word. And their example gives us an important implication of what it means to be a people of the word. Uh, We are to be a people of our own word. A people of our own word. When faced with the natural consequences of their sin, they didn't rationalize. Uh, They didn't look for loopholes. They didn't act out of pride or selfishness. Instead, They humbled themselves, and they owned the consequences of their actions. Look again at verses 19 to 20 with me. All the leaders said to all the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So, even though they initially failed to consult with the Lord, the leaders of Israel knew the importance of, of maintaining their integrity. Uh, Their covenant had been sworn in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. No doubt the importance of covenant was front of mind for them. Remember the sin of Achan uh, from chapter 7. It wasn't just that he took something he wasn't supposed to. No, the language that's used in chapter 7 verses 11 and 15 is that Achan transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Covenant promises are not to be taken lightly. This understanding of the importance of covenant, it's obvious in their words in verse 20. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. They remembered God's judgment of the sin of Achan in transgressing the covenant, and they did not want to repeat. Even the fact that they were being given the promised land at all was the direct result of God keeping his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. How then could Israel treat their own covenant with Gibeon with such disdain? 
This kind of covenant unfaithfulness was far from the mind of Joshua and Israel's leadership, and it should be far from our minds too. Uh, Despite the negative consequences, despite them, Joshua would honor the covenant with Gibeon and keep his word. He would own the difficult consequences of his sin. So what do you do when keeping your word means difficult consequences? Do you find yourself looking for a way out? Or do you keep your commitments out of integrity? Uh, This may seem like a minor distinction, um, but I promise you it's not. Uh, How you deal with the consequences of your actions reveals what kind of relationship you have with God. When we look for a way out of our consequences, uh, we're not just acting out of pride and selfishness. We're actually refusing the grace of God. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. This is important. Um, When we find ourselves in positions of weakness and humility, we're forced to rely on God. Um, The consequences of sin are often meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. Uh, And when we have nothing left to rely on in ourselves, we're forced to find our everything in Christ. Jesus highlighted this kind of uh, spiritual bankruptcy time and time again in his ministry Remember the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or again, when the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus for eating with tax collectors and with sinners, what did Jesus say? It's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, right? It's those who are sick. So when we try to escape the natural consequences of our sin, what we're really doing is running from God's grace. But when we open up to owning our own sin and embracing the consequences, we allow God's gracious and tender discipline to shape us and change us for the better. This is why it's so important for us to be a people of our own word, Because walking in the light of the truth, it sets us free from the bondage of self-preservation. Let me say that again. Walking in the light of the truth sets us free from the bondage of self-preservation. We no longer have to look out for number one because we are able to freely entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and savior and his will for our lives. And I do mean it when I say freely. There's a real freedom to being a person of your word. Um, Being a deceptive person, always trying to cover up things with lies, always rationalizing your actions, honestly, it's exhausting. Um, I've been there. But listen, it is so sweet to lay down the burden of living by lies. But now here's an important reminder for us from Joshua 9. Sometimes the consequences of sin are permanent. Uh, In the case of Israel, the Gibeonites become a permanent part of their people. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. The Gibeonites were to become a part of Israel forever. If you read through the Old Testament, they keep popping up time and time again just as part of the people. 
um, the actual presence of the Gibeonites becomes a perpetual reminder to Israel of their failure to follow God's word and their failure to occupy the land in the purity commanded by God. Sometimes the consequences of our sin, uh, they're temporary, like a scraped knee or something. Even though we can have uh, forgiveness for our sins in Christ and forgiveness from others that we've sinned against, though, sometimes they're permanent. Sometimes the natural consequences of sin might be here to stay. Uh, This can seem very daunting. But our trust in God, despite even permanent consequences of sin, is a testament to his grace and his sovereignty. Uh, What Satan would use to steal or kill or destroy, God is powerful and faithful to use for his good will. Now listen, uh, the real world examples of sin's permanent consequences, um, they can be very heavy. Uh, They're very personal. Maybe it's the unintended pregnancy as a result of sexual sin. Maybe it's the shock and trauma of marital infidelity. We're not making light of these consequences. We're not saying that they're not really a big deal. No, they are a big deal. But no matter the consequences of sin, running farther away from God is not an acceptable solution to earlier disobedience. Two wrongs don't make a right. And often, the permanence of sin's consequences is so that God's grace might be shown to be sufficient in our lives. Let me explain. If you think that God's faithfulness means that God will always remove you from difficult circumstances or consequences here and now in this life, your hope is only skin deep. Your hope is in the fleeting comfort of this life. You're in for a rude awakening. That's not really how God works. But, If you can continue to trust in God through difficult circumstances or consequences, you will find that God is perfectly faithful. Then you will prove that Christ is truly your sufficiency. God is faithful no matter what your circumstances are. Do you believe that this morning? Maybe you're here. Uh, Maybe you've dug yourself a deep hole in your marriage, one you don't think you can get out of. Maybe you've seriously hurt a really close friend and you don't know if the damage is repairable. Honestly, it probably feels easiest to just cut bait and run away. But listen, God's grace is sufficient for you in the exact circumstances that you're facing. Cry out to him. He hears you. Trust him. He cares for you. God is faithful and will give you the grace you need for this moment and each and every moment after. Maybe you're not facing some intense trial, but just the day-to-day troubles of this life. Uh, A good question to ask yourself is whether your prayer life reflects the same kind of trust in God's faithfulness that Joshua had. Are your prayers more focused on having God bring you out of your trials or for him to strengthen you through them? Are they focused on trusting God and his timing? Do you trust in his faithfulness, his strength in your weakness? This is what the example of Joshua and the Israelite leaders shows us, that keeping our word is more important than saving ourselves from difficult circumstances. 
because we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in the all-encompassing sufficiency and victory, which is only found in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the third way in which we are to be a people of the word. We're to be a people of the living word. A people of the living word. Now, this requires us to take a step back and survey the account of Joshua 9. As we've seen, Joshua and the Israelite leaders show us the importance of depending on the word of God. Uh, We've also seen from their example the importance of being a people of our own word. Um, But what's most important for us to read in Joshua 9 is how far we're actually pointed away from Joshua. The account of the Gibeonites and the failure of Joshua points us about 1,400 years beyond Joshua to Jesus of Nazareth, to Jesus who is the living word, to Jesus who is the new and better Joshua. The name Jesus, of course, very closely related to Joshua in their native Hebrew. They both mean uh, salvation or deliverance. But more importantly, what we find in the Bible is that Joshua is uh, a type of Christ, What we mean when we say that is that in some ways, uh, Joshua's character and actions um, give us an illustration or a shadow of Jesus' character and actions. We can see this when we compare the persons of Joshua and Jesus, as well as just what other Bible writers tell us. We learn this from Hebrews 4, verse 8. We've already heard this verse before this summer. Honestly, it bears repeating. Hebrews 4, verse 8. It says this about Jesus and Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, without going into too much detail on this verse, what we can plainly see is that even though Joshua brought the people of Israel into the promised land, it didn't provide the true rest that God intended. True rest, true peace, wasn't achieved by Joshua, but it has been perfectly achieved by Jesus. Uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, remind us of this. These are familiar verses to us. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In a way, the text of Joshua 9 uh, is a text about how Joshua failed. He failed in fully conquering the enemy. Uh, He compromised with the people in Canaan. By not seeking counsel from the Lord, Joshua left enemies unconquered, and Israel's inheritance in the promised land was polluted. But by observing the shortcomings of Joshua, we are pointed to the complete perfections of Christ. Joshua gave rest from war, which was physical and temporary. But Jesus gives rest to the soul, which is eternal and spiritual. Joshua gave partial victory over physical enemies, but Jesus gives total victory over spiritual enemies. Joshua led the people imperfectly into the promised land, but Jesus leads us perfectly into the promise of eternal life. Joshua 9 shows us that Joshua failed by not seeking the will of God. Remember verse 14, he did not ask counsel from the Lord, but Jesus. 
Jesus is the living word. When Jesus came, all he did was the will of the Father. All he spoke was from the Father. As the living word, he perfectly communicated God to us. He never failed to rely on the word of God. Even when he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus had perfect unity with his Father, a perfect unity he brings us into. Jesus is the only one who can bring the true peace that Joshua couldn't. Jesus is the only one who can give true victory over sin that Joshua failed to give to Israel over its enemies. Our sin has separated us from God, and it's made us enemies with God. Just like the Gibeonites, we too are doomed for death and destruction. But in Jesus, God has made a way for us to be saved. Will you cast yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus, just like the Gibeonites did to Joshua? Look again, verse 25. The Gibeonites plead for Joshua's mercy. Behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. As we too place ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, he will bring us into his family, just as Joshua did to the Gibeonites. Have you placed your faith in him? Is your faith in Jesus, the living word of God? Do you trust only in Jesus for victory over sin? If you don't, your sin will ultimately bring you death and eternal punishment. But if you're a person of the living word, Jesus will give you eternal life and perfect victory over sin and death. Joshua 9, it's an important picture of what God's will is for us as his people. Without a doubt, God's will is for us to be a people of his word, a people who don't walk by sight, but walk by faith in the word of God. For you, is the Bible just reserved for Sunday mornings? Or does it completely reshape your priorities? Does God's word transform everything? Of the way you work, the way you use your money, the way you parent, the way you use your time. And God's will is for us to be a people of our own word, a people who willingly accept the consequences of our sin because we're seeking the grace of God. We don't place our hope in ourselves or in a comfortable life, but we place our hope in the Lord God who is faithful despite our faithlessness who gives us strength in our weakness, whose grace is greater than all of our sin. And this grace comes to us as a person in Jesus, the greater Joshua. As a people of the living word, we place our faith in Jesus who gives us complete and perfect victory over sin and death. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, Thank you for your word given to us in the scriptures. Your word is unfailing, unchanging, and all-powerful. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God, we confess that we too often have relied on our own wisdom instead of trusting your word. Father, forgive us. Lead us by your spirit to trust in you and to trust in your word for everything. God, transform our lives by your word that we would be a people for your dwelling. 
And God, you were a God of your word. Thank you for your perfect faithfulness. God, help us in our time of weakness. Be our strength when we are faced with the consequences of our sin. God, help us not to seek self-preservation, but help us to cast ourselves submissively on your grace. We entrust our lives to you. And God, thank you for giving us Jesus, the living word. Thank you for how Jesus has communicated God to us. And thank you for the salvation, God, that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross, giving us total victory over sin and death. God, we love you. Please continue to transform us into a people made in the image of Christ. In the name of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the living word. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.